One of my favorite scriptures in the Bible goes like this. It's in Ephesians chapter 4. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. My parents used to say that to me a lot when I was a kid. It made sense to me. But one of the reasons I really love that verse is because it doesn't prohibit anger. I would be reminded as a kid that God would get angry. That anger is not antithetical to the Christian faith. Sometimes we are angry. And sometimes, sometimes we are angry justifiably. The point here is two things. Don't let your anger consume you. Don't let your anger come into the next day. Deal with your anger. Face your anger. But the prohibition that really is interesting to me here is the call in the scripture, when you're angry, do not sin. Do not let your anger overwhelm you to the point that you become a sinner, that the anger wins, that it changes your call to holiness. I love that verse for all of those reasons. But I was told a story when I was in high school by a couple in my church, particularly the woman was my Sunday school teacher, about one time that this verse went a little wrong. Now, in their marriage, they had used this verse as a template in order to work out their differences with one another. And this couple was just instrumental in my life. So many of my friends at that age, they invested in us. They They were a great family. And so they would tell this story about how when they got married, when they began their marriage, they made a covenant with one another that this verse was going to guide the way that they fought. And I think in marriage, it's very important to realize that Fighting is not a bad thing. Fighting demonstrates that you're engaged with one another. It may be possible that you fight about things that are ridiculous, but every once in a while, there's going to be differences of agreements, and fighting shows a level of comfort of going at each other with those differences, that you're able to hopefully, healthily state your case and hear the case of the one that you're married to as well. And so they made the decision that they were not going to sleep until they resolved their anger with one another if they were ever in a fight. And this had suited them well for for well over a decade in their marriage. And one night they got in a real big humdinger of a fight. And they were so angry with one another. And their second rule with this was, if you got to the point that we could not reconcile it, we would split rooms and allow ourselves to calm down just a little bit. And whenever the first one was ready to come back and to talk it out, they would begin talking it out. But they would let themselves de-escalate. And so one night they were going at it really bad in their bedroom when finally the husband got up and said, I need a timeout. And he went out to the living room and sat down. And he was so mad that he couldn't get over his anger. And he just kept stewing and stewing and stewing. And the wife in the bedroom she began calming down. She began calming down, and so really it was her role to go out and try to fix it. But he sat in the living room, and the hours started rolling by. One o'clock, two o'clock. And he was not calming down. He was getting angrier and angrier and angrier because she wasn't coming out, and he wasn't ready to go in and fix it. Three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock. Where is she? Six o'clock. And the next morning came, and she woke up. In her calming down, she had fallen asleep. And she looked at the clock and realized that her husband had never come back in. 
And so she was suspicious based on all of their rules of engagement that he was probably out on the couch having not slept a wink that night waiting for her to come out and fix it. And so she calmly walked out the door, down the hallway, into the living room, and found her husband staring against a wall, eyes bloodshot, hardly blinking, in absolute fury. And he's, where have you been? You know, real angry. He had not calmed down. He was angrier than ever. And she said, I've got a confession to make. I fell asleep. And his fury exploded. He was so mad. The issue wasn't the issue anymore. Now, she had done exactly what their rule wasn't, that you did not go to sleep when you were angry with one another. Now, fast forward years, they would tell this story almost annually to the teenagers because we were all thinking about marriage and future and dating and all this kind of stuff. And it was funny by this point. To them, it was hysterical. But at the time, it wasn't. There was such passion and anger. And their desire, their decision in their marriage from the very beginning was that they were going to take each other with such seriousness that they did not want to take yesterday's problems into tomorrow, that they wanted to address one another, that they wanted to hear each other out. And this had worked really well for them, except the one time that it became a struggle. Today I want to talk about marriage with you all, and I'm going to do so in the context of Proverbs. And so Proverbs is an interesting text in so many ways. There, you almost wonder, what's going on here in Proverbs, there's these quippy sayings, they're clever understandings, and while there's a lot of wisdom to be found in these Proverbs, a lot of times they don't resolve themselves. They don't actually have a solution. They're one-liners that make an observation, and those observations are, are, they hit, they land, but often there's no expounding upon them to take it to the next step. Well, what do I do with this? And so there's so, what, so many different kinds of Proverbs. In fact, you can read the Proverbs of the Scripture, but we have Proverbs in our own society as well. Things like, all is fair in love and war is a proverb. Those who sleep with puppies catch fleas, meaning be careful who you hang out with. The early bird catches the worm, money talks, the sky is the limit. All of these are Proverbs, and they're meant to stir your mind in order to start wrestling with what could this possibly mean and how could I possibly apply this? There's other Proverbs as well. Too many cooks spoil the broth. There's ones in scriptures that you might even want to argue with. Spare the rod, spoil the child. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun, huh? I'd like to bring some of these Proverbs writer back, have them live in our time and answer the question of what those metal birds in the sky are. There's nothing new under the sun. Sometimes these things are easy to argue with. In fact, today, while I'm looking through the Proverbs to find things about marriage and relationship, I find that there are many people who argue with Proverbs even today. For example, this was written in a society that was deeply patriarchal. And so there's a male-dominated voice in the Proverbs. There's very little to be found from the female perspective. And so we're left wondering, what is it that women talk to each other about? What were the pieces of advice that mothers gave to their daughters in this time? The language of son is used regularly in Proverbs. It's as if one of the major perspectives of this book is the wisdom giver, the one who writes the Proverbs, passing this wisdom on to his son. 
as he faces marriage. And so I have a few texts today. They, um, they were written today. They might be considered sexist, but they're scripture nonetheless. I did find one that criticizes men, so I'm going to read that as well, because I'm trying to be as fair as I possibly can be. And so, uh, so let's, let's read these Proverbs about marriage today. The first one is Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9. Better to live on the corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. I mean, let's be honest, that's true. It's so true, in fact, that if you check out Proverbs 25, 24, it's literally there again. Better to live on the corner of the roof than to share the house with a quarrelsome wife. This was so important to the Proverbs writer that they had to make it two separate verses in the book. Wild. How about this one? A quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. (laughs) Listen, I'm not saying that kind of thing to my wife. In fact, I didn't even tell her I was preaching about uh, marriage today because I wanted her to come to church, so I'm glad you're here, Sharice. So... But then I found this one as well, which is more of a criticism of men, particularly in this time. Uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6, many men claim to be men of unfailing love, but who can find a faithful man? What we know in the midst of these Proverbs is that relationships are difficult. They're difficult. It's hard to live with someone who's quarrelsome. I've found, as someone who's done a lot of marital counseling, that sometimes a quarrelsome wife is quarrelsome because the husband's not very good at being a husband, right? Sometimes it's not the wife's fault. I've found that many men often struggle with fidelity, if not with pure sexual fidelity, just even keeping their eyes fixed only on their wife. Marriage is hard. Marriage is a commitment for life. When we stand before the church and our friends and our family, and we give these vows often at insanely young ages, like 19, 22, 25, 27, and we say the rest of our lives, we're saying three times longer than I've already lived? Two times longer than I've already lived? I mean, we're, we're giving ourselves to another person for an undetermined amount of time which could be more life than we have experienced to that moment. And so we're entering into a relationship with another person who is wound completely different than us. As a man, we have a different biology than the woman. As a woman, you have a different biology than the man. There are different priorities, different yearnings, different experiences. It's really wild when you get married and get to your first Christmas and realize that you've got two families that you have to satisfy with two completely different traditions, and you start realizing even things like Christmas and Thanksgiving can be difficult and can lead to fights and arguments and difficulties. Marriage is hard, and yet in the church, we do this, we go to this incredible work to suggest that this is the way to build a life. To give yourself as a man to a woman or as a woman to a man and to live your life in fidelity with them, being only with them, loving them, submitting yourself to them, loving them as Christ loved the church. This is difficult work. 
And it leads to a whole series of unique complaints about the person that you love more than anyone else in the whole world. How ironic is that? And so we understand in these texts how difficult it is to live with a quarrelsome wife. It's difficult. We know that a faithful man is worth his weight in gold, but is hard to find. Difficult. And so Proverbs whips up these sayings, and we read them, and they strike true. Yeah, that sounds right. But the question is, what do we do with it? When the proverb lands, when you see the wisdom in it, when you recognize yourself in the proverb, what's difficult about Proverbs is it doesn't take the next step to tell you what to do with that. We know that it's difficult to be married to a nag. We know it's difficult to be married to a person who's not faithful. And this wisdom of Proverbs sometimes just screams as if it's a cautionary tale, but what do you do when you find yourself in that moment? What do you do when you understand your spouse to be unfaithful or quarrelsome or nagging or whatever? What do you do then? So we have to dig outside of Proverbs a little bit. We need to look through the rest of the scriptures and piece together an imagination for what a Christian marriage might look like. And so I want to give you just a few pieces of advice that come out of wisdom that has been developed out of the Proverbs, in the church, in the scriptures, of ways in which to re-engage your marriage. My hope is that uh, I know many of you are married. Not everyone listening today is married. Many people hope to be married again someday. My hope is that whether you're in the midst of the healthiest marriage in the church or one that's hanging on by a thread or you're not married and hope to be married again or you're a child or a teenager that hopes to be married someday, that these can be helpful reminders of how to cultivate a Christian marriage in a Christian house. The first is this, pray together. I think this is really hard. I don't know about you, but I find it kind of awkward to walk up to my wife and say, hey, honey, you want to pray together? It's awkward. It's strange. But yet, it is an intimate act. It's a putting yourself out there. It's an opening yourself up to this other person. There are more ways. This is really, really key, and I hope you can hear this well today. There are more ways to be intimate with your spouse than just sex. And prayer is the Christian call. I mean, Sex is a part of Christian marriage, no doubt about it. But, but prayer together is a way to open yourself in an intimate way to your spouse. It's an important thing to do. And as awkward as it can be, it brings about some of the most powerful and wonderful moments in the life of a marriage with someone that you love. In fact, I started thinking about the times that I prayed big prayers with my wife. And I thought I'd tell you a story. I've never told anyone this story before, actually. And so 11 o'clock here for the second time, you guys, you early birds, get to hear it for the first time ever. So just about three years ago when we got the call that, um, that we were going to be interviewed to pastor this church, we came in the night before the interview. We were invited by the district superintendent to spend the evening with him. So we did, and then it was like, you know, he sent us off to our hotel at like 9 p.m. And so Sharice and I weren't ready for bed. And so we figured, what would we do? Well, we drove up to the church here. We'd never seen it before. I'd never been in Ellicott City, Maryland in my life. I'd been to Maryland before. I'd been to Baltimore. I'd been to D.C. I'd never been to Ellicott City before. And so we drove up and drove around the church. And it's really dark here at night. I don't know if you've ever been here late before. We have a few lights in the parking lot, but it's really dark in this part. There aren't a whole lot of street lights out there. And so we drove up, and the, the lights of the car kind of 
splash in the church, and we thought, yeah, that looks like what Google Maps says it looks like, so we must be in the right place. And so we drove around in the parking lot. It was about 9 or 10 at night. If I had known then that so many police officers like to write the reports and stay here, I might not have risked driving around like a creeper in the middle of the night around the church. But we pulled around the church and realized, of course, the parking lot kind of deadens back here right against the side of the gym. And we pulled up right up against here, and uh, we were kind of in awe about, like, being here. Like, we, we weren't trying to get out of our last church or anything like that, and we knew this was a great church. And we just decided right here in the parking lot to pray together. Then what we prayed was not that we would get this opportunity or something like that, but that God would be known, that we would know what God wanted to do with our lives. And so we just sat here for about 20 minutes praying with one another that God would show us what he wanted to do with our next steps in our life, and that we would not be manipulating it at all, that we would not want something, that we would not, that we would not try to be charismatic or interesting in order to woo people to vote for us, but that we would truly submit ourselves to God's call in our life. And it was a beautiful moment where we both just gave huge decisions in our life over to God and let God work in our life. There's been smaller moments and big moments like that throughout, but sharing with one another in that way, praying with one another, really brings an incredible unity because you're reminded that it's no longer about simply your opinion, but their opinion, but even more than that, that both of you together are submitting to God's call on your life as well. It's a beautiful way to dig into life intimately with the one you've given your, li- your life to. And so pray over big decisions together. Pray for your kids. Pray for your spouse. This is an intimate, intimate way to grow nearer to God and with one another as well. The second idea is this, is have a date night. This is a little bit dated. Now, I'm not sure, like, date night was this thing we used to do back in 2019. There were movie theaters and restaurants Right, You can go walk downtown, grab tickets to a show or a game. Um, I'm hoping we get to do that again someday. But seriously, especially in light of how enclosed our life has been for the last year, find creative ways in which to be alone with your spouse. Maybe you can go find a babysitter and walk along a river or in a state park. I mean, there's ways to get out and get together. But it's very, very important that you set aside time to be alone, doing something fun with the one that you love. If there's anything that I've learned as a pastor working with families that has surprised me, the absolute number one thing that has surprised me is how many marriages are functioning fine through raising kids, and then the last one goes off to college or gets a job or moves out, and the nest becomes empty, and all of the struggles of the last 20 years rise to the top. That there's so much about raising kids that it turns out was papering over the splintering in relationship in a marriage, that the kids' busyness and schedule no longer allows you to overlook it. There are far too many of us that are giving ourselves fully to the children And we're missing for 20, 25 years how we need to be cultivating our relationship with one another. And not cultivating our relationship with one another in those key years while we're raising kids has caused more divorces at the age of 45 to 50 when the kids are out of the house than I would care to recount 
and to tell you about. That next season, when the kids are gone and it's just that person that you had the kids with, and now you're looking at each other and there's no children to buffer between the two of you, and you have to figure out how in the world are you gonna have a relationship now? If you wait until that moment, it's difficult to overcome years of neglect. If you're raising kids at your house right now, take time with one another. Keep learning who that person is. Be attentive to the ways that they're changing. Their longings, their interests, their desires are changing. Take seriously the person that you're raising your children with. Take it seriously. Get to know them. Ask them questions. Be intentional. Because one day the kids are going to leave. And if you've not been intentional in building a relationship with that person that you share a house with, those next few years are going to be painfully difficult. Stay dating. Stay being romantic. Stay hitting the buttons of how the person you live with is loved. Making sure that you're doing things that you may not like, but help them feel loved. Building that relationship is going to be vital for the last half of your life. It's going to be very, very important. So make sure that you continue dating them in the season of raising kids. Then finally, the, the third thing that I want to talk about is having a conviction for longevity in your marriage. And this is the one that I think is really, really hard. It's one thing when you're in a beautiful tux and a lovely dress and everyone is made up and there's a party. It's one thing when your dating experience has been so good to even say casually, yeah, in sickness or health, as long as we both shall live. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's another thing to have a conviction through it even when things are struggling. It's difficult to have a conviction when it feels like things are breaking. But as a Christian marriage, we are called to this sort of conviction, that we will work for and with this person that we've given our lives to, that we want to work through the difficulties, that we expect that there will be difficulties. There's going to be difficulties in marriage, but the way to get through them is to see past it, to understand that this, is no, this problem, this struggle that we're in now is not the end. This is one along the pathway. But we are seeing all the way till the end when one of us or both of us die. That we're going to work through this. We may not see how now, we may not know why now, but we will get through this together. I went back and looked at the, uh, the language that we use in the vows when we get married. And some of the words stuck out to me in a whole other way as I was thinking about calling us again to a conviction for longevity. Will you love, comfort, and honor them? I mean, we think about the big ones, like, for richer or poor, a sickness of health. But what about that part of the vow? Will you love, comfort, and honor them? I'll be honest with you, that took me aback. How many times a day do I go out of my way to make sure that in my marriage I love, comfort, and honor my wife? Or do I just hope those things happen? I can't, imagine, I can't imagine longevity without intentionality and things like that. That I go out of my way, that I take my comfort and set it to a side, that I set my desires and my imagination to the side, and I take seriously love, comfort, and honor them. And I remembered that I, I, mean, I was 19 when I got married, which I know is crazy, 
but it's true. I was 19 when I got married, and I said those words that I would love, comfort, and honor Sharice. I promised it. In front of my friends and family in church, I promised it. And how often do I lean back into those promises that I made to make sure that it's central to my relationship in my marriage? The pandemic has been hard on marriages. I, I know this is true. We no longer have the buffer of our busyness to hide from. We're in our house more than ever. We're with the person we're married more than ever. And the worst and the best of us are more clear to each other than have ever been before. I'm terrified that all of this is going to end and we're either going to forget the lessons we've learned or we're going to stumble back into our busyness, ignoring once again the struggles that we have. But as difficult as this season has been, hopefully we're reminded of how important it is to lean into loving the one who sometimes makes our life difficult. And we know, I mean, I think just anecdotally, look around, Christian marriage is in decline. People are struggling to give their whole life to one another. Divorce rates are through the roof. It doesn't have to be this way. We as a people, as a Christian people, can once again lean into our imaginations and callings and desires for what marriage looks like. We need to remember our call and why it is that we get married in the first place. And so I want to leave you with just a couple of reminders of what marriage is as a way to reshape how it is we think about one another. First of all, Christian marriage is meant to be a testimony to the world. It's a testimony of the love and the fidelity of Christ. We get married to someone who is radically different than us. So that in our love, in our union, we can show the world how a God who is radically different than fallen man could love us with fidelity and faithfulness no matter what. We are a testimony in our marriages of what the Christian life looks like. We marry in order to show the world what God's love for us is like. Second, Christian marriage is not meant to make you happy. This is so important. We do not get married to be happy. I hope your marriage is happy. I really do. But that's not the reason. If you're in marriage just to be happy all the time, I've not seen a marriage that is just happy all the time. We do not get married to be happy. We get married as a Christian in order to make us holy. Because the Christian life is about submission to God and Christian marriage is about submission to another person. And we learn to make less of ourselves and more of another. And when we do that, we're following the golden rule, that which Christ calls us to do, to make less of ourselves, to make more of God, to make space in our lives for our neighbor, to treat them and love them as ourselves. And marriage is the most, the closest practicing of these Christian teachings and maxims. You don't get married to be happy. I hope you're happy. I root for your happiness. I long for you to be happy, but we get married in order to practice the holiness that God has called us. So I invite you to see your spouse as Jesus sees you and to live towards your spouse as Jesus calls us to live towards our neighbor. Third and finally, Christian marriage is a biblical call on us. In the Bible, we are called to get married, to populate the earth, to have families. We are told that marriage is when two become one, Man and woman come with so many different differences. There's so many different differences. And that's even before we get to personality issues. 
There are differences upon differences between the two people who come to the marriage altar, pledging themselves for life. But in the end, the unity that forms among these two different people giving their lives to one another is exactly the unity that we're called to in the church. And it reminds us as well of the final scene of the scripture where Christ comes down dressed as the bridegroom and the church gives itself as the bride of Christ. We are practicing that moment in our life. Our hope is that heaven will meet earth and that we will be wed for eternity with Christ our Savior. And we practice that. We testify to that with the way that we're married to one another. Our marriages tell the story of Christian redemption to the world. Marriage is hard, though. I I mean, as much as I can give a few ideas and pass some advice along in a sermon, marriage is hard, and it's never as simple as a proverb makes it or a sermon makes it. Marriage is hard. Some are so far down the line of dysfunction that it's hard to imagine making its way back. But as we sang in that song, Graves into Gardens today, God can make something miraculous even out of the most dysfunction that we have. You may be so struggling in your marriage and in your family, but if you'll commit to God and commit to longevity, you never know what kind of miracle God can make in your household. You never know through the submission to Christ from each of you, man and woman, what sort of restoration there can be that there can be found in God. And we at Crossroads want to be a part of helping you create strong families and strong marriages, ones that really, truly mirror our relationship to Christ so that we are like Christ for the sake of the one that we are married to, helping one another grow nearer to God through holiness by giving ourselves fully to one another. At Crossroads, we're here to help, and sometimes that help looks like scheduling a a time to sit down and have a marriage counseling session. Sometimes that looks like us having, in non-pandemic times, marriage conferences. Sometimes that looks like having mentors and friends and people to talk through. I know that there are men, men and women throughout our congregation who just meet with each other to help push one another on towards a healthy marriage. You're not on your own if you're a part of Crossroads. We're here to give our lives to one another to help us in these places where it's so difficult to be fully Christian when what we bring is stories of dysfunction in our past and hurt and struggle. It's hard to break through those things. But if you're struggling, tell someone. Tell me as a pastor. Tell Pastor Nan, who works in our marriage ministries. Let someone know that you're struggling. We can't wave a magic wand as crossroads and fix it, but we want to be a positive part to help you have a Christian marriage that is vibrant and exciting, that's growing, and that's a means of grace in your life. This is the will of God. We're imperfect people. We can't on our own come as an imperfect, sinful person, marry and unionize with another sinful, imperfect person, and make a perfect union. We need the help of God. God is working in our lives to make us holy. Marriage is one of those tools. Submit yourself to God that he would find his way into your house and into your marriage. And take Proverbs like we read today, stories of the worst that they could possibly be, nagging and infidelity and all this sort of stuff, and turn it upside down so that when you read Proverbs like that, you, you might even say, 
Yeah, I don't get it. That doesn't make sense to me. My husband's always faithful. My wife never nags. Because it's through Christ that our unions, our families, our marriages can be made better, more whole, and look more like Jesus. Would you join me in standing as we sing a final song today in closing?